This is a Rook Media Series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 20. Hi there, and welcome to the Contemporary History of Iran, a series from Rook Media. This is part 20, Foreign Policy under the Ayatollahs. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Our aim with this series is to explore the events, personalities, and issues that have shaped modern Iran. We want to do this as much as possible through a non-traditional lens, through snapshots of change, and using alternative voices or angles. This series is mostly in English and will feature a new episode posted every Thursday across our Rook Media platforms. We will post subtitled excerpts with Farsi Zirnavis on our YouTube and Instagram sites. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms, and we invite you to check out parts 1 through 19 of this series that are already posted. To become a sponsor or patron of Rook Media, please contact us through our website. The Contemporary History of Iran is brought to you in part by Yazdani Law Group. YLG is one of the largest Iranian-Canadian immigration law firms. Their mission, rooted in the leadership of founder Afshin Yazdani, is built on continuously striving to innovate and introduce new immigration pathways for their clients. Afshin began his career as a lawyer and law professor in Iran, and his company has now made it their goal to provide the best, simplest, least risky, and most inexpensive way to immigrate to Canada. YLG has an impressive track record, hundreds of applications from Iran successfully processed every year. They are at YLGPC on Instagram. That is Yazdani Law Group. All right, let's get started. Here now is the Contemporary History of Iran, Part 20. Well, it is impossible to assess the contemporary history of Iran without a look at how Iran chooses to interact with the rest of the world. We have, in previous episodes in this series, discussed the foreign policy aims of, say, Prime Minister Mossadegh in the early 1950s, or Reza Shah in trying to navigate the imperial powers in the lead-up to World War II, or the very close relationship of Mohammad Reza Pahlavi with the United States in the 1970s. But what about after the revolution of 1979 that changed everything in Iran? How are we to make sense of the way Iran has dealt with the world in the last 43 years? What has been the intent and what has been the approach? On this episode, we want to take a very elemental look at the Iranian foreign policy approach since the revolution of 1979 and its shifts, its contradictions, and its continuities. 
My featured guest for this topic is someone who has recently published a very well-received book on this very subject. Dr. Ali Fatullah-Najad is a German-Iranian political scientist with an interest in Iran, the Middle East, and the post-unipolar world order. He is an associate fellow with the American University of Beirut's Isam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs, and he's the author of the monthly brief, Iran in Focus. Dr. Fatullah Najad has taught at the University of Tübingen, the PhD program at Qatar University's Gulf Studies Center, and at FU Berlin's Center for Middle Eastern and North African Politics, to name just a few of his stops. He received his doctorate in international relations from the University of London and was the recipient of a postdoctoral fellowship with the Harvard Kennedy School's Iran Project. He has been an Iran expert at the Brookings Institution in Doha and with the German Council on Foreign Relations, and he's a frequent speaker at academic conferences and political forums and regularly contributes to leading international media outlets in English, German, and French. His new book, released in 2021, is entitled Iran in the Emerging New World Order from Ahmadinejad to Rouhani. And right now, Dr. Ali Fatullah-Najad joins me from Berlin, Germany. Hello, sir. Hello, and thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to have you on the program, and you've written the most interesting book, and it's not going to be easy to cover a few decades of Iranian foreign policy in one hour, but my hope is that we can do so and do so in a sort of elemental and accessible manner whilst still using your expertise. Yes? Yes, I hope so too, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. So, you know, I thought I would start with the revolution itself, um, which you discuss uh, in, in the book, in the way to getting to the last couple of decades that you focus on. In the first months of the revolution of 1979 and the ousting of the monarchy in Iran, there was not yet an exclusively Islamist government. Rather, it was actually pluralistic in its foreign policy quest, seemingly. You talk about independence via non-alignment as the grand strategic preference of folks like Mehdi Bazargan, who became the first prime minister of this new Islamic Republic. The idea of a non-aligned foreign policy stance would actually go back to Mossadegh. Can you describe it? Well, absolutely. I mean, in order to understand, of course, Iranian foreign policy, it's indispensable uh, to look at the tremendous changes that we've seen with the Iranian revolution of 1979. Um, yet, um, independence uh, as a leitmotif uh, is quite key in understanding uh, Iranian foreign policy, also going back to the pre-revolutionary era. And this idea of non-alignment uh, very much uh, you know, goes back to the Mossadegh era uh, that you've uh, discussed with other guests on your program. Um, and his idea of negative equilibrium. And the idea is basically... Uh, not to be attached uh, to any uh, great powers or superpower, uh, neither uh, any Western superpowers, be it uh, at first the British Empire, but then the uh, so-called American Empire, but also uh, not to um, attach itself too much uh, to uh, the uh, Eastern camp, so to speak, oh, the Soviet oh. Union, uh, which is now Russia. So, um, so it is basically uh, being uh, independent from great power tutelage. And because you have seen uh, in the history of modern Iran over the past uh, 200 years or so, uh, several instances of uh, colonial infringement, 
And uh, of course, the 1953 coup uh, against Mossadegh, um, there was, uh, you know, chiefly initiated by the British and the Americans, but also was uh, aided and aided by domestic forces, mm. uh, was a uh, important turning point in uh, making this idea uh, quite central to Iranian uh, foreign policy identity. And if you look at different Iranian political cultures, uh, which I also identify uh, or discuss in the book, yes. um, which are nationalism, uh, Islamism, and socialism, you yes. see that all of them, despite their differences, uh, would agree uh, on this uh, common denominator of, uh, of pursuing an independent foreign policy, which is still, up until today, very much on Iranians' minds, um, and it is, you know, interesting to see how it goes today. Actually, let me get to that. I, but, but just sorry, parenthetically, what does um, where does the term negative equilibrium come from? So basically, the idea, as I said, uh, that um, you detach it, yourself from both, uh, you know, major powers of the time. You don't uh, seek any kind of, uh, you know, strategic uh, game into it, you know, mm -hmm. by, for, for instance, allying uh, with the one side against the other. So it's basically being independent uh, from uh, those great powers that can actually, uh, you know, do some infringement on your rights, on your sovereignty and so forth. I see. I guess the negative is, is just saying no. And you get you yes. balanced through saying no is the is the, I you know when we just before we get to the post revolutionary period, just in terms of what leads up to that, the yeah. orthodox expectation, um, you know, so the knee jerk idea is that foreign policy before the revolution under the rule of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, especially in the years after 1953, is all about the embrace of the West. Is that a a fair assumption or is that too simple? Well, uh, I think, um, I mean, first of all, I'm not a historian, uh, but I think uh, this may be, um, I mean, an accurate description, but yet uh, probably uh, not being complex enough. Uh, the reality is, of course, that what we've seen with the Iran revolution is that from uh, one day to the other, uh, Iran from being the, the most important uh, partner of the United States in the Middle East, you know, came to be its most important foe. Mm. So this is a huge uh, transformation, of course. And it was, uh, we had this kind of embrace of the West, as you put it, uh, back then. There is no doubt about that. And uh, I mean, also the Shah's rule was also due uh, because of the intervention that those Western powers did in Iran, who uh, helped him in this rule and his uh, autocracy. And all of that, I mean, even the Savak, uh, you know, the, the intelligence service of the Shah was, uh, you know, basically set up by the Americans and the Israeli Mossad, uh, by the American CIA and the Israeli Mossad. So there is a uh, strong embrace. Uh, of course, there's a clear geopolitical preference, but also a civilizational preference of the Shah of Iran uh, toward the West. And uh, this has, you know, been on display on uh, numerous, uh, on, on, on the way of life uh, that he uh, tried to emulate. Uh, and for instance, his, uh, you know, his celebration of assumedly 2,500 years of uh, Iranian, uh, of Persian Empire right. and Persepolis a few years uh, before the revolution was, uh, I mean, basically very much emulating this Western model. Everything imported was almost uh, French. So um, 
it was very clear uh, that uh, there is this kind of ambition. But then again, it's not that surprising because after all, the West was quite developed and was the you know it was the de uh, the developed world. It was mm. this industrialized world. And I think it's not surprising that uh, in the state of development that Iran found itself, uh, they would look to the West to, uh, to copy. Uh, but then the Shah, of course, uh, got overambitious, so to speak, and he wanted uh, not only to emulate the West, but to be much better than the West. You know, uh, an important element in this kind of uh, perhaps megalomaniac self-esteem was in the wake of the 1973 oil uh, embargo, uh, which uh, Iran very much benefited from, yes. and uh, so Iran was would you know export a lot of oil, and you know Arab countries would not do that uh, because of the uh, Palestinian-Israeli conflict, and Iran got windfall revenues, and uh, at that time even uh, the Shah of Iran was giving credit, uh, I think, of one billion dollar loans to both the French and British governments, uh, you know, uh, to cope with this crisis uh, that, you know, was um, overwhelming across Western societies because of the over-dependence of oil, of course. You know, in the latter years, um, preceding the 79 revolution, the Shah got much more emboldened um, and uh, went on to criticize his, so, so to speak, former masters, mm. which uh, then, you know, also led to his, uh, to those Western powers being uh, disillusioned with him mm. and uh, being ready to look for an alternative, maybe. When you, when you talk about the independence um that, that theme of independence or non-alignment being something that's that's been an underlying theme of, over the last few decades. Uh, this this was actually, I mean, under, you know, as Khomeini con consolidates the, the the Khomeiniists consolidate the revolution in the in the early early eighties. This is the revolutionary slogan, right? Neither East nor West, neither Eastern nor nor Western, but Islamic Republic. And I. I understand the symbolic nature of demonstrating independence and an anti-imperial line, but you know, in a granular level, what did Iran really have to gain by isolating itself from West and East? Well, that's a very good question that is still, you know, very much discussed up until today. Uh, but you're uh, absolutely right. I mean, the key slogan, I mean, one of the key slogans of the Iranian revolution, if not the, the key slogan, was neither West uh, nor uh, the East. Um, only the Islamic Republic. So um, there was a detachment from both, um, you know, Eastern and Western superpowers because of both of them, not only the Western side had infringed upon Iranian rights. I mean, the Russian also, I mean, there, there is a history of Russian also colonialism uh, in Iran. Sure. So all of that stemmed from, uh, you know, not only uh, the 1953 coup against Mossadegh, but from the wider experience of modern Iran uh, of the last 200 years with those co two colonial powers. And given the zeitgeist of the 1960s and 70s, which was after all, you know, a period of decolonization, I mean, starting, of course, in the 1950s, but all over the world, also in the West, uh, we had a, a quite a hegemony of leftist ideas. Uh, and so the same was true uh, in the political debates in Iran. And of course, uh, you know, Mossadegh with his oil nationalization plan that, uh, you know, drew the ire of the uh, Western powers against him and led uh, eventually to his overthrow. 
was, uh, of course, a, uh, the first uh, leader of the so-called Third World to make such a claim of independence um, and uh, of real sovereignty that led eventually to the uh, founding in 1961 of the non-aligned movement, mm. uh, you know, in, uh, an organization of different glo global southern states uh, that still exists up until today, but was very much, of course, uh, you know, characterized by the figures of Mossadegh, but later uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, mm. uh, Sukarno in Indonesia, Nkrumah in Ghana, Nehru in India. So all of that uh, was part and parcel of a zeitgeist that fed the ideational architecture and worldview and Weltanschauung of the uh, of various Iranian revolutionary movements uh, in the 1960s and 70s that led to the 1979 revolution that eventually fed and nurtured this kind of independence-like motif that came out of it. Mm. And um, for the Iranians, uh, they proposed, well, we have an alternative to the East and West, which is the Islamic Republic. And of course, this was not the Iranians who, you know, majorly proposed that, but it was very much the, uh, you know, Islamist forces, Khomeini, mm -hmm. who uh, pushed for this idea. But uh, this was the kind of claim that the new regime then had to offer a third way, so to speak, which was the Islamic Republic. Again, it seems at best, I mean, the enthusiasm for the neither East nor West uh, beyond the the catchy slogan, uh, seems at best idealistic and and at worst almost juvenile. I mean, during the hostage crisis, there's this dictum from Khomeini that reads, "We must isolate ourselves in order to become independent." I mean, in this way, Iran's international isolation was being sold almost as a blessing of some some sort. Yes. Absolutely. And this is, you know, this turned out to be, uh, you know, just the very opposite uh, till today. I mean, first of all, if you look at uh, the validity of the of that of this slogan uh, today, you see that well. After all, I mean, especially after the hostage crisis, the Islamic uh, Republic became a very clear anti-American regime. Uh, despite the fact that, I mean, even Khomeini had contact with the CIA, as we know from uh, declassified documents that were released over the last few years, um, in, you know, by assuring them, actually, if he comes to power, you know, it would be no threat to American interests. But because of his thirst for power and consolidating power uh, against those rivaling interests, because after all, the Iranian revolution was not uh, at the beginning an Islamic revolution, it was a plurivocal uh, movement consisting of, uh, you know, the various stripes of nationalist, yep. uh, socialist, and uh, let's Islamist, um, you know, groups and ideas, uh, then got into, uh, you know, uh, Islamizing uh, state and society later on. But, you know, it, after the hostage crisis, Khomeini just abused that in order to consolidate its power. And then from then on, it was very clear that it was very anti-American. Whereas the anti, let's say, anti-Russian uh, component, you know, the uh, neither Eastern component, uh, then uh, became more and more into kind of a quasi-dependency on those non-Western great powers over the decades, because the Islamic Republic uh, sought to uh, seek a balance against US and Western pressure by aligning to those non-Western great powers, such as Russia and China, 
and with both of whom, uh, the Islamic Republic over the last few years now, I mean, uh, just very recently, yes. forged uh, 25 or 20-year agreements. Um, and what I argue is that it has now, you know, put itself in a, in, in a state of uh, also dependency vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China, thus very much undermining this key ambition of the Iranian revolution to be independent from both mm. Eastern and the Western camps. And of course, the independence, again, was the third way to steal uh, Tony Blairism, it was, was in this case, the Islamic Republic, neither East nor West. Uh, you make the argument that in the immediate wake of the 1979 revolution, not only a process of Islamization of state and society was initiated by these new rulers, Khomeini, uh, but Iranian foreign policy gets Islamized too. How do you Islamize a foreign policy? Well, um, uh, I'm, I'm heavily relying on the work of a major Iranian um, scholar in the United States, Ruala Ramazani, who um, uh, made a distinction uh, between Iran first, firsters and Islam firsters. Uh, right after the Iranian Revolution of '79, um, with Islam firsters being, you know, uh, the kind of perspective uh, being um, promoted by Khomeini, and the hostage crisis was key in um, uh, in, in providing uh, the Islam firsters with their uh, final victory, with their uh, you know def uh, definitive victory. Uh, in um, and then the other, uh, you know, Iran firsters uh, were very much um, sidelined, uh, if not repressed. Um, so the hostage crisis and the abuse of Khomeini was instrumental in this kind of Islamizing of foreign policy. And uh, the sad part is that if you uh, pursue such an ideologically uh, invested kind of approach uh, against the West, you might lose sight uh, of the other uh, patterns of dependency that you you may be confronted with. But what does it? But what does it even actually mean? I mean, it does it mean okay, we're going to assess our relationship with Germany based on Islam? I mean, what? What? How, how do you even? How do you Islam Islamize a foreign policy? So basically, what it means is that uh, on several grounds. I mean, first of all, it very much pertains to the very political structure the Islamic Republic has put up uh, in the country, uh, institutionalized uh, after the revolution. And this is somehow projected onto foreign policy, both on its regional, uh, you know, when it comes to its neighbors. I mean, Khomeini was calling for uh, those uh, Arab neighbors of Iran to stand up against their own leaders, right, uh, right. which he portrayed as Western lackeys. And uh, so, of course, this created a lot of conflict. Also, was a you know providing the ground for the emergence of the Iran-Iraq War at some point. And up until today, the cultivation of like-minded Islamic groups, uh, Islamist groups uh, in the Middle East by the Islamic Republic, this proxy network that the Islamic Republic has established for over 40 years now, uh, initially, initially with the establishment of Hezbollah, mm. which is a, a Shia uh, Islamist political organization that was you know, created by the Iranians. 
So there was a, a huge ambition to export the revolution. Yes. I mean, this was also the motto, uh, yes. one of the mottos of the revolution, yes. or, or especially of the Khomeini. I was going to ask so you about that. What, what is the, I mean, because as you say, embedded in the Khomeini's Islamized foreign policy is this discourse around exporting the revolution. And I, as I was reading that in your book, I was thinking, I, I actually remember, I mean, I was a kid at the time, but I remember this, this talk of exporting the revolution. What was the dream? Is the dream that the Islamic Republic becomes a new kind of Persian empire but, or something? Well, maybe because, it, I mean, yeah, well, there is a lot of continuity between the two regimes in terms of their megalomaniac aspirations, for sure. Uh, and there is a well-ingrained also uh, factor of Iranian nationalism that is also not wholly opposed to this idea of reestablishing kind of empire, be it under the Shah or even uh, under the Ayatollahs. Um, they actually, one could also put it that way, that the Islamic Republic had the ambition to create, uh, you know, a third way empire. So to, to uh, I mean, it was uh, it was interesting, but it's also contradictory because, I mean, on the, on, the, on the one hand, one would say, well, one is against imperialism, US or British, one is against um, also um, Zionism or uh, colonialist Zionism. Uh, we don't like Palestine. imperialism unless we're the imperialists. Exactly, <laughs> right. and there is uh, so th th there was this Islamic, uh, you know, uh, Islamist, uh, you know, aspiration of exporting the revolution, which um, you know at first sight might be in contradistinction with those other you know Western or Eastern imperialism, but there is also a lot of similarities. And of course, uh, you know, there was uh, this, um, you know, very much, uh, I mean, ingrained idea by many Islamist forces all over the globe to have a universal uh, aspiration, a global ambition. So Khomeini had a global ambition that went far beyond uh, only, um, you know, uh, the Shia communities uh, or even only the, the, the Islamic communities. And uh, which was also quite popular, even with some anti-imperialist movements. So it was probably, I mean, in a nutshell, uh, a combination of anti-imperialism and uh, Islamism. You you mentioned uh, nationalism, and I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about nationalism because both the Shah in the Pahlavi era and then the rulers in the new Khomeini era utilize. Iranian nationalism as a way of boosting power and making their case. The Shah, especially in the 70s, is ostensibly making foreign policy decisions and rulings with an agenda of recognizing Iran's great past. You mentioned Persepolis, invoking it with some some road to a great future. And then Khomeini uses nationalism of a different stripe for his own goals as a way to unite the country against the monarchy and then a rallying cry when the Iran-Iraq war happens. How do we make sense of the shifting symbolism of nationalism in this massive regime change in the late 70s and and how it gets used with respect to foreign policy? Well, I think Khomeini actually um, did rather pursue another idea, which is detesting the notion of nationalism, saying this is a term and concept derived from the decadent West. So hence, he was an Islam firster and not an Iran firster to take up the distinction by Ruhollah Ramazani. You know, instead, he would favor the idea of the Ummah, of the uh, you know Islamic world community. 
So he was very much, and uh, up until today, uh, a lot of Islamists are very much uneasy, uh, to put it very mildly, with the idea of nationalism, that which they regard as a degraded concept, as a decadent concept that should be opposed um, to, to instead to promote this idealized version of a Islamic world community that doesn't know of any national boundaries. So this was a main distinction uh, between the two regimes. And right, um, but when he's rallying, but when Khomeini's rallying and gaining support, and in fact consolidating his power by at the beginnings of the Iran-Iraq War, isn't he using nationalism as, as a tool, or or are you saying, or is the argument that if it's Islam first, that he's using Islam as the rallying cry rather than I think Iran? It, it was very much Islam as the first rallying cry. Uh, of course, uh, Shia. Islam can be seen as a kind of Iranian religious nationalism as well, because mm. after all, uh, you know, Iran is the major Shia country, right, right. not to say that it's, you know, it's uh, the epicenter of it, but it's a major Shia country in the world. So, uh, you know, Shia Islam is a kind of religious nationalism as well, one could put it. Mm. But then within the new ideological um, framework of the Islamic Republic, uh, at the very first phases of the Islamic Republic, there was a very clear dominance and supremacy of uh, Islamism, of Shia Islamism. And whereas over the last few decades, we could more see the outlines of, of a mix between Islamism and nationalism in the ideological framework of the Islamic right, Republic. Right. So up until today, I would say that both Islamism and nationalism play a dominant role. And we've seen the, the first probably uh, you know, instance where the nationalist discourse got very much at the forefront is during the hotline president Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who um, you know, more uh, strongly uh, than probably his predecessors relied on some nationalist elements the developments over the last few years and why nationalism became, you know, or is increasing in importance is also because of the realization by many at, uh, you know, uh, among the regime leadership that Islamism as a rallying cry has lost much, much of its erstwhile appeal uh, with the Iranians. So relying on nationalism, they hope, would be able to uh, more easily create uh, what we call a rallying around the flag effect. Yeah. The, the, I mean, the revolution wasn't exported. It hasn't happened, right? In, in terms of Islam being the, the, the thing that really captures the imagination uh, uh, in terms of the way the Khomeinists saw it. Um, well, I, I think it did in some way. I mean, uh, I mean, in the earlier phase, for sure. In the earlier I mean, phase, was, maybe. Hezbollah set it, set up. Uh, so this is a prime example that it actually worked quite, uh, you know, successfully up until today, where Hezbollah is arguably the most important political factor in Lebanon. Um, so it it's worked. Uh, I mean, this exporting of revolution worked, but it actually, in order to you know to have peaceful coexistence with the neighbors, it created discord. Uh, with the Sunni leaders that uh, te the Tehran leadership would just uh, characterize as Western lackeys. Mm. So up until today, this create and, and then to set up semi-state and proxy groups in your in in your neighbors' countries that would you know right, challenge right. Uh, their states. So for for, for sure, Iran's for for sure Iran's been disruptive. I I, I was I'm more thinking. Can we name a country in the world that's gone? We want to be. We want to be the new Islamic Republic, just like Iran. I mean, it just hasn't. It hasn't exactly inspired copycats, has it? 
Uh, not at, at a larger level, you're absolutely correct. Uh, but at a smaller level, at a sub-state level, uh, yes, it did. Because the Iran revolution, after all, was uh, the uh, you know emergence into the scene of global politics, of what we call today political Islam. So you know this idea is very much you know come to fruition and into realization, into implementation by the Islamic revolution uh, or its so-called Islamic revolution in Iran. It was emulated by uh, many groups. And of course, uh, yes, I mean, it's no. Uh, so this promise of the exporter of the revolution was only successful partly. Just, just before I leave the idea of nationalism, there's something you do in your book that I think is, I always find these these juxtapositions so interesting because you you do point out some continuity between the the Pahlavi era and the new the the, the post revolution era. Um, with respect to nationalism, you point out at one point I want to quote you. You say there forms a remarkable continuity between apparently fundamentally opposed personalities or regimes of Mohammad Reza Shah and Ayatollah Khomeini, who become both portrayed as national saviors. Um, and so if you can explore that continuity for a moment, I think it's very interesting. Well, uh, I think we've, uh, you know, we've mentioned a few elements before. Uh, what I would add is, uh, of course, uh, the national savior, uh, you know, element to it is also we have to include the Iran-Iraq war uh, that started in 1980 and which uh, Khomeini, uh, you know, abused. And also, I mean, he could have ended it after two years, but uh, actually, um, you know, he did not in order to uh, maintain and to consolidate uh, the power of the newly established Islamic Republic and his idea of the guardianship of the, uh, you know, or, or of the dominance of the clergy uh, in, in, in politics in Iran. So in this context, of course, he would portray himself to be a national savior. Um, and before, a national savior that would be at the helm of a revolutionary movement uh, that, uh, you know, very much was against the Shah, but uh, was not so sure about what alternatives to set up. Um, so on two uh, fronts, uh, you know, in the, in, in the struggle against the Shah, he was, uh, of course, uh, you know, trying to portray himself as a national savior. Although he would more, uh, you know, more pronouncedly uh, insist on the importance of Islam than on Iran, so uh, I mean, you you can see that with numerous speeches of uh, Khomeini. I mean, uh, even very much epitomized when he came back, uh, you know, uh, for uh, almost forty three years ago, uh, with this Air France uh, plane uh, ba came back from uh, his French exile uh, mm -hmm. to Iran. Uh, after the Shah had fled uh, as a result of the revolutionary movement that had galvanized. Um, so he was asked what kind of feeling he had when, after all, he was returning uh, to his uh, home country after decades of exile. And he said basically nothing. Yes. He said nothing. So he has no uh, emotional, you know, <laughs> no emotions. So, which is also interesting, which is also not very much, you know, in, in uh, you know, a supreme example of a nationalist feeling, right? Right, right, right. So, um, and then uh, also, and in terms of Mossadegh, he said, "Well, I mean, it's good that we got rid of Mossadegh, uh, because if he had stayed in power, he would have slapped Islam." Mm. So, you know, so there is also again this, you know, uh, insistence on Islam rather than Iran. So, of course, there is similarities between the two, but there is there are distinct, uh, you know, uh, emphasis uh, from both as well. 
I want to get to the foreign policy uh, under Khatami in the the late '90s, and then and then how it shifts under Ahmadinejad. Just before we do that, there's this moment. Um, so we've talked about the beginning of the revolution in Khomeini, and then the 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 reformist movement, if you you know, as one way of calling it, that begins in the late '90s with President Khatami. Um, there, there's a there's a delta between that. There's a gap between that. How would you characterize Iranian foreign policy in that reconstruction period after the Iran-Iraq war, but before the ill-fated sort of reformist shift? Yeah. So basically, um, one usually, uh, you know, distinguishes between different post-revolutionary periods. Um, so, uh, so definitely the first decade of the 1980s was one of the consolidation of the state during the Iran-Iraq war, uh, which of course had also various impacts upon Iranian state and society. Uh, but at the end of the Iran-Iraq war coincided also with the demise of Ayatollah Khomeini, yeah. that uh, charismatic uh, leader who got uh, uh, at the forefront of the revolutionary movement at some point and who got into Islamizing. Uh, state and society. So we're now talking about the end of the 1980s, where this first post-revolutionary period, uh, you know, ends, and then comes the so-called, uh, as you suggested, phase of reconstruction uh, after uh, the eight-year war, which was the most, uh, you know, uh, devastating war uh, after World War II, with huge, uh, you know, human losses yes. uh, on both sides, but also huge losses for the Iranian side, because yes. after all, Iran was quite you know, uh, on the path of industrialization before the revolution. And a lot of things were destroyed. So there was, uh, you know, the very objective need to reconstruct the country. And this would be done uh, by also one of the founding fathers of the Islamic Republic, the late uh, Akbar Hashemi Rafsanjani, who then uh, became a president uh, of Iran, uh, who uh, also at that time pushed Ali Khamenei to become uh, the new supreme leader after the demise of Khomeini. And Rafsanjani had, uh, you know, uh, a more, let's say, um, realistic uh, and less ideological kind of approach uh, to various issues. And he would also try to uh, mend relations uh, with not only the neighbors, but also the West. So this was uh, the ambition uh, also uh, during the 1990s uh, preceding. And of course, I mean, it was partly uh, successful because after all, there is no, uh, regardless of the president, it is very difficult for any president of the Islamic Republic to really mend relations with the West until normalizing it. Because mm-hmm. after all, anti-Americanism remains a uh, indispensable pillar of the Islamic Republic mm-hmm. up until today. Uh, but then came uh, the reformist period, starting uh, with the election of uh, President Mohammad Khatami in '97. And with that, with the the coming of the the reformist President Khatami in '97, there's this rapprochement with the West, or this attempted rapprochement with the West. There's certainly a a clear reparation of foreign relations with Europe, for example. How how effective do you think the Khatami years were in reshaping Iranian foreign policy? Well, I'm not sure about reshaping because, um, I mean, after all, uh, the president is not the most important uh, figure in the political institutions of the Islamic Republic. It's the supreme leader. 
uh, although there was, you know, uh, also uh, different uh, dynamics uh, in the relationship between the president and the supreme leader. Uh, but uh, be it as it may, uh, the Khatami era was quite uh, uh, transformative in the discourse that he uh, espoused. He talked um, also in an era of, uh, you know, some Western scholars talking about a clash of civilizations. Uh, he said that, well, uh, we might we ought to replace it by dialogue of civilizations, uh, which was also you know, taken up by the United Nations at some point. And so this was very much a new idea that he was uh, you know, espousing and giving this famous CNN interview with uh, Christian Amonpour. Uh, and all of that made, uh, you know, ma made the semblance that, well, uh, he might be a Gorbachev of the Islamic Republic. And there was a lot of discussion, a lot of euphoria uh, bec uh, because of his discourse of a dialogue of civilizations. But then um, I think despite this discourse, this, not, this did not lead to a normalization of relations with the United States, mm -hmm. uh, but it did lead to much better ties with Western Europe, uh, although th those ties had also existed uh, in the you know previously under Afsanjani and arguably also uh, in the 1980s, uh, at some instances, in a more clandestine uh, way, yeah. exactly, mm -hmm. and uh, also in terms of uh, arms exports. Although I mean the West would also you know deliver weapons to both Saddam uh, Hussein's Iraq and uh, the Islamic Republic of Khomeini. Um, but uh, coming back to the Khatami era, the, the Mykonos uh, mur uh, murders, so which is Mykonos is a Greek restaurant here in Berlin, uh, where uh, during the Khatami era, there were, uh, you know, dissidents meeting, uh, many of them Kurdish, Iranian dissidents. Yes. So the Iranians basically uh, put up agents and organized agents who shot them uh, in the restaurant and killed all of them. That really uh, was uh, the turn, uh, the turning point in Iranian uh, European relations, at least. So that led to a diplomatic and political crisis with the German court. Uh, you know, after that, saying that uh, the order for those murders came directly from the highest leadership of the Islamic Republic, including, mm -hmm. you know, Hashemi Rafsanjani. And so this soured the relations and uh, a so-called critical discourse period uh, was set up between in relations between Europe and Iran. So this was, uh, I mean, in a nutshell, uh, uh, Khatami was talking about something new. Um, and uh, that was certainly also to the distaste of more hardline elements in Iran. Uh, but again, uh, those heartland elements uh, are very much in charge of various aspects of Iranian yes. domestic yes. and foreign policy. So this idea of mending uh, relations, uh, you know, to the fullest and also going toward uh, meaningful normalization of relations with the West never happened. But it's interesting that uh, if we go back to that neither West nor East, uh, um, slogan or idea of the uh, the, the immediate post-revolution idea. If you look at the last few decades, I mean, it's based on what I read in your book and what we what we've observed. It it it, it seems like a bit of a pinball between uh, uh, cozying up to either the West or, or 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 you know attempts at rapprochement with the West and then going back towards the East and then West and East. So after the the Rafsanjani and Khatami eras, there, there is this new, uh, this neoconservative period, uh, epitomized by the election of the former mayor of Tehran, Mahmoud uh, Ahmadinejad, to become the new president. And under Ahmadinejad, 
the foreign policy political orientation shifts clearly east. Um, what did that actually mean and why? Well, uh, I mean, this eastern uh, ambition, uh, I mean, it's interesting because it seems to be at odds with this kind of, uh, you know, revolutionary motto of uh, Northwestern, neither eastern. But uh, as you say, um, the uh, geopolitical preference to forge uh, closer relations with non-Western great powers uh, was very much elevated during the term of uh, President Ahmadinejad. And uh, this, of course, coincided uh, with uh, the um, neocon uh, government administration in Washington and with its uh, post 9-11 global war on terror that uh, very much uh, was was at the same time so this was uh, you know there was no uh, surprise then uh, that uh, you know iran would seek non-western partners to balance out this kind of pressure from the west but um, at the same time he was uh, you know also engaged in writing letters uh, to uh, american presidents so (laughs) Uh, it's not that he was, you know, totally. Uh, Which is know, really uh, weird, based on what he was saying. He, he, I mean, his exactly r- rhetorical he offer, attacks. He would yeah. offer Iran to, you know, to to be the manager of global conflicts. You know, like also, uh, you know, mimicking or I mean, sh- uh, displaying uh, megaloma- megalomaniac ambitions, as yes. if you know Iran would be a you know a global superpower. Uh, to be able to, you know, uh, engage on the same levels as U.S. or China. But then the very idea, I mean, uh, the Ahmadinejad period uh, comes also uh, within a international system that is experiencing a change. Because what we've seen is that um, with the 1990s, uh, with, you know, incredible GDP growth from China, but also India, what we've seen is a shift of the economic center of gravity on this planet from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And this was also not lost to Iranian observers who would therefore argue that, well, see, uh, the US or the West is in decline because the uh, geoeconomic center of gravity is shifting toward Asia. And so uh, not only we, ha- we we hate the West because of various you know, ideological and political reasons, mm. Also, economically, it makes less sense to focus on them because, after all, there are going to be more, much more important uh, economic actors emerging in the East. So this was very much driving, up until today, the so-called look to the East that uh, prominently first emerged during the Ahmadinejad era, which, which has now been uh, resurfaced with the current hardline government in Iran, led by Ibrahim Raisi. Yes. So this is the kind of ambition. Uh, so, to, you know, th- this kind of center of gravity shifting from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Secondly, uh, there are political economic power centers in Iran that have been very much arguing also for this look to the East because, uh, not only because, uh, again, not only because of ideological and political distaste for the West, uh, but this is surely an aspect, but also because they would just prefer to deal with like-minded autocracies because, I mean, there is little, <laughs> right. uh, you know, right. Right. <laughs> little, it's easier, uh, easier to do business with another autocracy. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, China and Russia are not going to table human rights when they talk to Iran, you know, so uh, this is much easier uh, to deal with them. And also, so this is the kind, because this is why 
the main, uh, I mean, the main figure pushing for the look to the East is the Supreme Leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. I mean, again, this is probably a naive, I have no idea how this works in the in the state, the, the power state of Iran, of, of contemporary Iran. I, I have a sense of it in, say, the United States and who the power brokers are, even the corporate power brokers and, and, and you know, the military industrial complex and the, the, the president you know, sits down with the, who he sits down with and makes these decisions or whatever. But in, in Iran, say in, you know, 2006, 2007, is Ahmadinejad going to the supreme leader and saying, hey, man, China is the, you know, that's where we should be doing business. I mean, is who's making these decisions? Well, the decision, I mean, the strategic decisions about both Iranian domestic politics and foreign policy are is derived from the same centers of power. And when it comes to key uh, national security and foreign policy decisions, there is, you know, there. I mean, there is an architecture of decision making in Iran. So it's not only, you know, a wholly totalitarian system where, uh, you know, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei, you know, decides everything on its own. Whereas, although he can be uh, surely, and as I do do so in my book, he, he can be considered to be the chief ideologue hmm. of the Islamic Republic, and he has a lot of power, and so his speeches do matter a lot. Um, so this is very important. Uh, one aspect. The other aspect is that there is a whole foreign policy and national security apparatus in Iran, where, for instance, we have this uh, body called the Supreme National Security Council, something that's mm-hmm. also in, you know, quite other form uh, exists in other countries, uh, for instance, in the United States with the NSC, which is the main elite body deciding on national security and foreign policy issues, you know. So uh, where the Supreme Leader has its own representatives, uh, the former so-called moderate president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, was uh, the representative of uh, Khamenei uh, in this very body for 20 years before becoming president. So uh, you see that, you know, the kind of uh, distinction, uh, the clear or the kind of very clear distinction that we suggest in many Western countries between, let's say, the moderate uh, elite uh, camp uh, or the reformist elite camp on one hand and on the other hand, you know, the heartliners, does not really exist uh, that clear cut in reality. So, but at the end of the day, the uh, supreme leader has the final say. And of course, together uh, with another uh, key uh, center of power in Iran, which we did not mention explicitly, which is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which was established as a kind of guardian for the regime after the revolution yes. by Khomeini. Yes. Uh, but who expanded after the 1990s when Rafsanjani opened uh, the way uh, for their involvement into the economy as an expansive economic empire. So it's a military economic conglomerate uh, that is that exists that has a lot of say also in terms of all those strategic domestic and uh, foreign policy decisions. I, notwithstanding what uh, you know what really actually changes or doesn't change the 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 the, the starkest contrast or perhaps the, amongst the starkest contrasts between Khatami and that era and Ahmadinejad is the tone. You talk about Khatami and the the Christian Amanpour interview, you know, Ahmadinejad was known more than anyone for his vociferous rhetorical attacks against Israel and the U.S. What what was his agenda in launching those attention-getting salvos? Um, I think very clearly 
it was to uh, extend Iranian, uh, let's say, popularity, if not legitimacy, uh, in the Middle East. Because if you look uh, at this period of post 9-11, and if you look at various surveys and polls being made uh, in the Middle East, you see that, well, Ahmadinejad may be the most popular because he saw the vacuum of Middle Eastern uh, leaders who are uh, allied with the United States um, and who would not dare to criticize uh, the policies of Israel uh, that became more, uh, you know, more expansive and more more aggressive during that period against the Palestinians. So Ahmadinejad would seize this opportunity to portray to, I mean, first of all, to signal to the so-called Arab street, although I don't like this term because it's somehow, you know, <laughs> sounds uh, pejorative. Mm. Uh, but uh, he uh, saw his appeal uh, in, you know, among the Arab populations of the Middle East by driving a very clear anti-imperialist and Zionist discourse, uh, which, uh, you know, after all, was quite successful in, in elevating Iranian soft power throughout uh, the region at that time. But this was only possible because there was a vacuum left by those Arab leaders who would not dare to publicly criticize the United States or Israel. So this was uh, also, I think, a very, you know, very clever move uh, by Ahmadinejad, uh, of course, which, I mean, the rest of, of that is ingrained in his own ideology. I mean, uh, and also which is very much, you know, the ideology of very various components of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Before I get to a final question, and, and by the way, it's it's uh, it's really interesting getting to talk to you about all this. I really appreciate your insights, and I really thank you for the time you've given us. Uh, I, I want to ask you a final question about the supreme leader because he's he's <laughs> formed the, the the subtext of the entire uh, hour, which is perhaps not a surprise when you talk about where the power resides. But before we get there, just in terms of, and you've given a nod to it a couple of times, in terms of the current um, state of Iranian foreign policy, what can we learn from what you've just been talking about, the recent decades of, of Iranian foreign policy movement to inform us around the, the, um, the new growing relationship with the East? I think what one could say uh, for sure is that despite the noble motivations of uh, many of the ideals of the uh, Iranian revolution, especially its foreign policy dimension, independence from great power tutelage, uh, we've entered very uh, early on, despite this motto, uh, into uh, a very clear obsession with uh, anti-Westernism and anti-Western sentiments that, uh, of course, has also his, its historical reasons for sure. But this, you know, very open and very radical um, anti-American sentiments that became the main ideology, uh, one could say, of the Islamic Republic, set the developmental trajectory of the Islamic Republic of post-revolutionary Iran on a, uh, on a wrong foot. And it slowly but surely moved the Islamic Republic into a path of dependency vis-a-vis -vis Eastern great powers, Russia and China notably, uh, because they would uh, you know, see them as uh, Iranian allies against American hegemony. Mm. Uh, but the reality is that it's not as simple as that. 
you know, for all those Eastern great powers, their relationship, their respective relationship with the United States is much more important than their relationship with Iran. So because of this, Iran has found itself in a uh, structural position of weakness mm. where Russia, you know, powers like Russia and China can abuse Iran's perennial conflict with the West, knowing that, well, I mean, normalizing relations between Iran and the West, if not a chimera, would take a long time to materialize. Yes. So, I mean, all of, I mean, all those deals that the Islamic Republic has forged with, uh, I mean, with China 20, for 25 years and the planned one with Russia for 20 years, we don't know the details. I mean, the details are not published as all secret. And it remains a highly controversial topic in Iran because the fear is that regime is selling out yes. because of unprecedented pressure from below, because of the protests that have happened over the last few years in Iran, which uh, was the core of my uh, research, actually, over the last few years. Um, By the way, not, not, not selling out metaphorically, but actually selling out the country out, like actually, right? I mean, it's uh, that, that's exactly. Probably, I mean, yeah. I mean, what we know for sure, because there are a lot of, you know, uh, what we don't know, <laughs> because it's secret, right? There's a lot of speculations and rumors, is that, uh, I mean, Iran is selling uh, China for probably a decade, uh, two decades now, uh, oil at a discount uh, level. Because it needs China to, you know, to help it on the international diplomatic and political scene. There is also a different mood uh, across Iranian society, which is um, so they always say America, uh, but uh, the enemy uh, is right at home. So this has been uh, a main slogan chanted by many uh, different groups mm. uh, across Iranian society that shows that this anti-American sentiment is no more able to uh, create a rallying around the flag effect. Uh, hence, the more prominent role that probably nationalism going to take in this kind of Islamist nationalist amalgam in the ideological structure of the Islamic Republic. But the look to the East ambition is uh, per se, uh, you know, uh, is per se uh, putting uh, Iran in a position of weakness uh, as long as it does not uh, normalize relations with the West. So the the, so uh, as a conclusion, uh, you know, the ideal motto of foreign policy would be not neither Eastern nor Western, but both Eastern and right, Western. Right, right. But in order to be able to more easily benefit from the look to the East orientation, Iran has to, uh, you know, uh, sort out its problems with the West first, especially with the United States. And as long as this does not exist, uh, it will remain in this uh, structural uh, position of weakness that it had put itself into it. It's, a, it's an excellent, excellent summary. Uh, although I'll, I'll step on it by asking one final question, which is, I, as I promised, I wanted to ask about the Supreme Leader. And when you, when you talk about the West, I, I, I'm not sure, I can't, always entirely figure this supreme leader out. I mean, uh, in the 2000s, right up to today, of course, Iran is under the control of the supreme leader. And it's hard to entirely make sense of his actions with respect to foreign policy sometimes. On, on the one hand, he is clearly often seen as the hardliner, obsessed with the U.S., utterly sus suspicious of its intentions, which he sees as, you know, ultimately geared toward nothing less than the destruction of the Islamic Republic as a system. On, on the other hand, it was Khamenei who, in the wake of Obama's election, lifted the taboo on normalizing ties with Washington, something that seems to be in play again today. 
Uh, how, how do we make sense of that? Yeah, this is true. And uh, whereas he loves to portray the West as global arrogance, and uh, yet um, uh, the Islamic Republic then, uh, you know, strikes a deal with global arrogance, you know, the, the very power that uh, one is, you know, uh, radically against. And the reason for this is regime security and regime stability that will, you know, the, the kind of primacy of probably much of the Islamic Republic strategic culture that goes back to the Khomeini era. And this idea that uh, if uh, the Islamic Republic as a state is in danger, uh, one could even do things that might be against Islam in order to uh, maintain power. So this idea goes back to Khomeini. And also the concept of drinking the cup of poison, hmm. uh, which Khomeini said he would do when right. accepting uh, the ceasefire, uh, to the Iran-Iraq war. But this cup of poison was also drunk by Khamenei uh, with the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, uh, at a time which is also, which I explain in great length in my book, came against the backdrop of heavy uh, US sanctions pressure, uh, the kind of crippling sanctions that we've seen against Iran during the Obama era, for instance. Um, which at some point led to a uh, different uh, cost-benefit calculation that actually um, the uh, Iranians cannot, you know, no longer resist. And resistance is the kind of policy, prominent policy that is designed uh, to be pursued against this kind of global arrogance. Uh, resistance was probably too costly. Uh, you know, by driving up, for instance, the nuclear program and so forth back then, the kind of same uh, strategy that Iran has been pursuing ever over the last few years after Trump's withdrawal. Uh, so once sanctions got from hard to severe, or let's or put it different, or from severe to extreme, mm. uh, when there was a qualitative shift, when the Europeans had joined the U.S. oil embargo, the the Islamic Republic would understand that, well, for regime security and for regime income, this would not be something sustainable. Hence, one would have to agree to forge a deal with the United States. Hence, the green light of the anti-American Khamenei right. to seek direct talks with the United States in, in Oman, the so-called Oman Channel. You know, a few years of discussions between the Iranian and American sides, direct discussions that preceded the kind of public diplomacy that we've seen with the so-called moderate administration of uh, President Hassan Rouhani and his foreign minister Javad Zarif Sorry, yeah. from 2013 onwards in uh, in Europe. So there's uh, always, and so I mean, uh, but but it's uh, it's amazingly elastic at the end of the day, isn't it? The, the, Absolutely, the, it, it's, no no compromise. Yeah. We will never compromise for our mission of the Islamic Republic, uh, except if our power is threatened, and then we might have to compromise. <laughs> we exactly. drink the poison. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So this is, of course, you know, uh, you know, for, for that shift, uh, you know, uh, all those leaders would prepare public opinion slowly but surely, always. But yes, because we have to understand that for many autocracies and dictatorships if not for all of them, the prime interest, the prime interest that is driving their domestic politics, but also their foreign policy, is the security of their own vested interest. The security of, reg of the regime, regime survival, is the key aim. And this is why all the other aims are 
derived from this key aim. Dr. Ali Fatullah Najad, I really appreciate the time today and I really appreciate the insights in your book. Thank you so much, Gian. I uh, very much enjoyed the conversation and I hope to continue it and talk about different uh, other aspects that we've not been able to delve into. Me too. Me too. We just scratched the service. Thank you. Merci. Khodafis. Khodafis. Dr. Ali Fatalinejad, a German-Iranian political scientist with an interest in Iran, the Middle East, and the post-unipolar world order. He is an associate fellow with the American University of Beirut's Isam Faris Institute for Public Policy and International Affairs, and the author of the monthly brief, Iran in Focus. His new book, released in 2021, is entitled Iran in an Emerging New World Order, from Ahmadinejad to Rouhani. And Dr. Ali Fatulinejad joined me from Berlin, Germany today. This is full time for the Rook Media series, The Contemporary History of Iran, Part 20, brought to you with the support of Yazdani Law Group, one of Canada's largest immigration law firms, YLGPC. On Instagram, please check out our regular editions of Rook and all things related at rookmedia.com. That is our website, rookemedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who make Rook Media happen. Talented Anahita, Super Parisa, Ponta the Artist, Sabi Roham, Ahai Mehrdad, the fabulous Keon, Captain Reza and Groovy Shaya. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you've not done so already. You can hear regular editions of Rook every Monday on, on all these platforms. You can find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. And as ever, Mizun Bashin.